Thanks again for listening to another episode of, uh, or tuning in for another episode of How Real Estate Changed My Life. As anybody who's listened to an episode before knows, I'm real big on kind of trying to dispel the myths that are out there as far as investing in real estate and then all the ups and downs of it that are real or not real. I want people to be aware of and listen to real people's stories. So with that being said, Tyler has an amazing story of how he got into real estate, what he's done with real estate and where he's going with real estate and how that's afforded him a lifestyle that's you know different than somebody that's just got a nine to five normal job and what have you. So with that, Tyler, thanks for coming on. If you want to say something and, and then we can kind of roll into it. Yeah, I'll say just thanks for having me on and uh, excited to see where this conversation goes. No, I just love hearing everybody's story. And it wasn't that long ago, I was sitting, I have a group of guys that we get lunch with every once in a while. And we sit down and we're just talking and then there'll be a new person that shows up every once in a while. And they're like, man, if y'all would like, people would just love to just listen, like not even be involved in the conversation, but just listen to what y'all are doing so they understand what's available out there. And then that's one of the reasons I went ahead and did the podcast is like, yeah, people want to know and they want to know from people who are actually doing it, not people that are, oh, don't do that, but they never had any experience. So with that said, tell me tell me how you got into real estate and, and, and what your story is. Oh man. So from as early as I can remember, I've never wanted to have a boss. And so I was like, <laughs> how can I do that? <laughs> You're not alone. You're not alone on that one. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, Reluctantly went to college, went to Texas A&M. And, good school, uh, though, if you're going to reluctantly go. That's a good school. It's a good school. Yeah. Everyone in my family uh, has gone to A&M and our spouses. So I vividly remember I, I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which mm-hmm. probably every investor on here is like, yep. Every podcast. Dad. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and and so I was like, wow, my dad has a PhD. He's got good credit. He's got uh, you know a lot going for him. But I don't think he's investing in real estate or passive income. Mm-hmm. And so I remember vividly 2008, as I was still in high school in 2008, but sitting there talking to my dad and, and uh, he's like, man, I think I lost a quarter million dollars in the stock market today or something like that. Oh. And so I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I, I, I was like, dad, you need to read this book. And so mm-hmm. we started looking for real estate my junior year of college. And then I remember I was in my labor economics class and I get a text from one of my friends on Manuel Street and... He's like, hey, they just did a short sale um, or they're short selling a fourplex on Manuel. And so I got out of class and I met a realtor over there. <laughs> I, I literally walked down the aisle in class, left and, and looked at this property, put in an offer that same day. And that kind of got us kickstarted. Bought that property with my dad's credit and his cash. I had part ownership, bought the one across the street. 1031 of those. I, I spent pretty much every waking hour over there redoing those properties. Mm-hmm. One into 10 more fourplexes across town um, and kind of just kept doing that over the, the long haul. So we've always been long-term buy and hold, but as many people probably know, that's a hard way of making a living. I think mm-hmm. I made a thousand dollars my first year out of college. So yeah. uh, that degree didn't really pay off then, but it has since. So the funny thing, I think we might have mentioned it before, like offline is, yeah, you don't have to go to the university, but the experience that you get and you, the connections you made, like that, that, that fourplex you met, you got that because of a relationship through A&M. So yeah. you, you get a lot of that. So, you know, I always tell people I got the best education in the world, I think, but it didn't have anything to do within the classroom, but you've got a lot more than just, oh, I did that and, and kept going. But I think you've, you know, on these other properties that you've done, how did you raise capital? Because you, you didn't have the regular job to, to make that happen. Yeah. So, I mean, starting out, it was just, just family. Uh, my dad and my uncle afforded me the opportunity to, to really get my feet 
feet wet on those. I don't know why they did that, to be honest. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So I moved those. But uh, so starting in 2015, we started doing more fourplexes. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go raise money. I kind of tapped out my dad and uncle, mm-hmm. my immediate sphere. And so I was like, hey, who else can we raise money from? And so I, I started putting together very, very rough PPMs. Private placement of, memorandums. Yeah, private placement memorandums and, and that kind of thing. My older brother um, and I started a company at that point to, to kind of do this on a small scale. Mm-hmm. And so we we raised money for those. And looking back, I wish I would have gone way bigger because small mm-hmm. scale syndication doesn't really work. Yeah. Uh, but it, well, it works, but it's not worth your time. I well, think. it's not going to pay off big. So right. exactly. Exactly. I mean, we did really well. I think we averaged on the life of those properties, we averaged 19 to 20% for our investors. Very good. Yeah, it was very good. Um, and that's, you know, uh, ROI or IRR was a little bit lower than that. But a couple of years ago, we we bought into some multifamily or sorry, uh, mobile home parks down south. Um, and those have been doing really well. I was actually just looking at the numbers on those, really just raising money from 506B. So we've never mm-hmm. done a 506C where we're able to like I can't go on this podcast and say what I'm raising for next, right? right. That's not what I'm doing. Yeah. I don't have a deal that I'm raising for, but uh, yeah, we we went 506B and just the sphere of influence that we had from doing it for you know five or six years at that point really just helped us go raise the money relatively fast. I mean, these were short turnaround type of purchases um, in a time where everyone wanted to get into mobile right. home parks. Hot, hot, hot topic. So very hot market, uh, especially that 20, you know, we bought one 2019 and then we bought one, I guess it was last year, actually. We bought another one uh, was last year. So yeah, it was just a 506B, raised the money for it. Again, wish I would have gone bigger, but at the same time, I'm bald and, mm-hmm. and stress of uh, having too many investors is it wears on you, and mm-hmm. so that you know how did it change my life? Like I've I've learned that I like to be under the radar. I like to mm-hmm. be the, the person that you know we've we've got a, a nice little nest egg of holdings, but uh, not going to go out there and do those big five hundred six C's. It's just not in my in my blood. So yeah, you, you have to have a personality for that. So you got to have the right person for that. So let's do two things. One is like on the mobile home parks. Did you finance them? You pay cash, and then also want to talk about the five hundred six B. Like. I think people need to understand that there's more money out there that they have access to that they don't know mm-hmm. that they do. So let's talk about both those. If you don't mind, like on the mobile home yeah, park, did y'all pay cash and then go into finance? Yeah, so, so Sea Garden Park, we picked it up for one a little over 1.3. I believe I raised five, a little over 550. Mm-hmm. So that was down payments, reserves. We didn't need to do a whole lot. There were four apartments that we also owned. So it was mostly lot rent, mm-hmm. um, but we a few of the the properties and then there was an apartment uh, for fourplex on it actually mm-hmm. so yeah raised the money for that that was a down payment my dad was a guarantor on that um so i gave him a, a little bit of the gp for that um, and then another one of the companies was the earnest money uh, so they, they put up the earnest money for that so that was pretty much how we did it i think we have like a 4.8 on that mobile home park on nice the, um, in today's the- world eight it's normal so <laughs> Exactly. Well, and I mean, we're doing a development uh, in Ingram that the construction loan is 9.4 or something like that. I mean, it's it's just gotten too crazy. So mm-hmm. yeah, so we're at like 4.8 on that park. Uh, and then another one is Lazy Days. Oh, that, that first park was a 50, it's a 56 unit. Um, and it actually just did 32,000 in gross. And I did the NOI on it. If we sold it at a nine cap today, it'd be worth 2.3. Yeah. So ex- excited about that. So how did you move from fourplexes and duplexes to 
bigger deals? Yeah, you know, I think- Were you nervous? Like kind of the thought process in that? It was just a progression. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of it came down to my relationship with with Jacob um, mm-hmm. and that group. And so he we'll was get able- him on here too. Yeah, yeah. You need to have him on here. I quickly learned that I didn't do well dealing with tenants. I don't really- like people too much in that sense. <laughs> and so it was really him that gave me the, the confidence and also, you know, having the backing of my friends and family to go out and do some of that. You know, it's all well, we need to deploy X amount of capital for a 1031 exchange. Well, you always got to go buy bigger and better. And yeah, so- that's the thing with real estate. If you if you play the game right with the depreciation and such, like it, it almost forces you to buy more real estate and it forces you to yep. grow up. And get bigger. We have one company and we just have 1031 from those two fourplexes. So eight units basically is what mm-hmm. we started with. But in no more money, we now have like 40 something units in that company. And it's just nice. from 10, um, and that that real estate's probably worth over two million, you know, mm-hmm. sort of thing. So that's all we've done is long-term buy and hold, no more capital in, and that's that's what it's been. I read a report not too long ago and it was they interviewed all the people that owned real houses or a lot of people that did and and most of them only had one house. And the thing was is they all thought that was their best investment of all their investments. And then the follow-up question was like, well, if that's your best investment, why did you only have one house? Mm-hmm. And their answer was they didn't know how to get to two. So how did you go to two? You know, I, I think it was the school of hard knocks for sure. First person I ever ran into walked away with $3,000 in free rent mm-hmm. uh, because I didn't know how to evict. I didn't know when to evict, what mm-hmm. the process was. So, you know, I think tuition when I was going in was about $5,000. And, and that was that $3,000 was uh, a, a expensive a real number. It was a real number <laughs> for us and my, my family. So it was, it was things like that. And, and really, you talked about sitting around a table and telling stories on, on how real estate changed your life. And I remember going to Brick, so Braz's Real Estate Investment Club. Uh, Jeff Mazzolini put that on. Another person you ought to have on here, uh, the We Buy Ugly Houses guys. And I just sat there and, and I didn't own any real estate at the time and listened to them uh, talk about what they're doing, how they're creatively financing things and doing all these things. And I'm like, oh, there's a lot of money out there mm-hmm. one to, to use, but also to be made in this industry. So that, that's really how I went from one to two is, okay, I'm just going to go do it. And I'm, I'm the type of person that I wish I was the type of person that had a plan all the time, but it's more so I, I see the vision of I need to go own real estate. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go do it. There have been many, t- this last purchase, actually, if you're, if my investors are listening, it turned out okay, we're doing great. But <laughs> <laughs> like, we almost lost the deal and I was going to be out about $40,000 mm-hmm. uh, because of bank financing. right And so I didn't know how to go out and buy this property in the environment that I was buying it in. And so I negotiated, I talked with the, the selling agent and just just did it, right? And so it's always been something that I go out and do it and then figure out how to make it work because mm-hmm. I believe in it, right? So I think that's how I got to number two is, is just taking a leap of faith, mm-hmm. um, believing that I'm going to be able to figure that out. Um, and there's people that have done it before, right? That this isn't, we're not inventing the wheel here, going out and finding smarter people to, to yeah, help me. Hanging out, out with people. And that, that's exactly right. This is what this is for is just so people understand like, because not everybody is so fortunate that you, like I met you at was George's O bar in Waco yeah. because of the crazy network. And um, not everybody's fortunate to have those people that they You're can I mean, ask. There's, yeah. You get on meetup.com and, and there's probably 10 meetups this week that you can yeah. go to. Yeah. So, and, and people are scared, but listening to podcasts is easy for people. They can listen in, in while they're driving to their job or whatever. But uh, you mentioned something about financing on you know the loan and maybe losing it. So how do you finance your deals? Because it's not Wells Fargo, so, right? 
No, it's usually a community bank. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a relationship with a banker for, you know, 10, 12 years now. And, and so we like to keep in-house loans and, and not go secondary market uh, just because mm-hmm. they want everything in your firstborn child uh, yeah. when you go that route. So we usually do a community bank that we have a relationship with and, and they're basing it off of personal financial statements. Um, they still don't like my income. So I usually have to go get a guarantor from a gray haired or someone that doesn't have hair. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it's really that. Um, sometimes we've gone out and done, you know, a private money type of loan. And, mm-hmm. and so we'll, we'll go in and buy cash and then refinance after we've been able to stabilize the property. So those are the two most common that we use is, is a community bank or we'll go out and do private financing until we can get it switched over to a conventional loan. Yeah. I, the conventional loans make me so nervous when I'm going to acquire because I always feel like I'm going to get something's going to catch me off guard, or surprise me because I've, I've had traditional banks kill a deal for me twice. And yep. fortunately, I had private money or, you know, cash to make it happen. So I'm right. a big like raise the money to private money the first on the acquisition and then refinance it because that way you can control your deal and you aren't putting as much at risk. It may cost a little bit more, but yeah, on these deals, it's less like, risky. I mean, the last one was a one point. It was like right under 1.2. And I was like, I just don't think I'm going to go raise 1.2. And I had already called my my private money guy who could probably do it, but he had already deployed um, his his money as well. So it was kind of like, well, got to negotiate this one. So mm-hmm. also learning negotiating. You know, I think that's people always ask like, oh, what should I go do for you know, if I'm in college, what kind of job? And I, I just think it's always good to be learning those skills that will take you down the road for what you ultimately do. And so I sold gym memberships, right? And so just being able that's to good. That's real good. So you're that, Alex Hermosi guy? You know, I see him on my LinkedIn all the time. I haven't really dug into any of his stuff yet. Oh, so. I just listen to his podcast because that's where he got his start. And he was acquisition.com, I think his thing. So he's okay. all on yeah. businesses. I don't know. He's fun to listen to. He's a good business guy to listen yeah. to. If anything, just energy. It's not, it is nuts and bolts, but mostly it's energy and, you know, putting yourself in the right mindset to, I think, always be ambitious. You know, you can't be complacent. I may be content, but I'm not complacent. That's the the motto for me is like, always have to be moving forward. So it's such a, it's a, such a fine line to, to draw those like, okay, am I being complacent? But I also want to be content. You know, mm-hmm. I think um, it's something that I've had to look really work on over the last uh, few years. Right. Okay. So let's go back to your 506B. And yeah. for people that are listening, that's for people that are like your friends and family, kind of the, you can't market, you can't say, Hey, I'm raising money for anything. Cause that's, it's just, you know, your, your, it's your mom, your dad, your uncle, your cousin, oh, your neighbor. Accredited as well, right. So, right. so that's the other thing is it non-accredited investors as well. So. Right. And so accredited would be somebody that has a net worth, accredited somebody with a net worth of over a million single primary residence. Right. Exclusion primary. And then if they're a married couple, it's 300 or more income for the last two years with the predicted stay that way. Right. Is an individual, I think is what, is it two, 200? 200, 200, 200 yeah, for an individual. So you're in the B world. When you did that, was it what you expected? Like to raise capital? I mean, you kind of already had a network. Yeah, but it was still like, you know, taking calls with people that knew what we do and, and we've had a relationship with because you have to have a right. prior relationship. And so it was still taking calls. A lot of it was like people that my dad had relationship with or that, that was an old family friend that, you know, worked at AM or something like mm-hmm. that. So it was still something where I got my feet wet on legit fundraising. I mean, like mm-hmm. it's easy to see your uncle and be like, hey, this is what we're doing. And then his twin brothers, your, you know, your mm-hmm. dad. <laughs> you go raise it that way. Um, but the 506B, it was one, it was a lot of fun because, you know, it was people that I had a relationship with for a while. A lot of people are like, oh, don't do business with a family. But 
And I still, you know, I, I look back at those days and there were some hard times. You know, mm-hmm. I think when you don't give a distribution um, and you got to call, you know, a family member up and be like, hey, we're not getting a distribution this quarter or whatever it might be. It was a lot of fun because it rekindled relationships, but then it was also very stressful because. Yeah. I, w- I would think that they would understand you know, you're working your rear end off and you feel really bad about not having distributions made. I would think they understand that. Maybe they don't, or you pick the wrong people. They do, but. I'm a perfectionist and I didn't do a good job of communicating. So anybody that's looking to raise, you need to be a very good communicator, even being able to communicate bad news. Mm-hmm. And if it was bad news, I just didn't like to communicate it. But that was obviously my fault. That is not the right thing to do. Yeah, it's human um, nature. It is, you know, and so that's something I've learned. It's like, okay, you know, I've got a, a monthly call with a friend that's heavily invested one of the deals. And I'm like, two, three months ago, I told him, hey, we're not going to get a distribution until October. And that's going to be when we can start doing it again. We had a pretty big storm come through South Texas and blew some roofs off, had some you know major damage. But, but that open line of communication is something that I learned to have uh, from those previous deals for sure. And I would say people are harder on themselves than the other people, the, oh. the investor. And that's it's and that that that's a credit to you that you want to do well by them and you want to you make every deal perfect and but everybody knows it's not because you know what they're the stock market goes down every once in a while and that was their alternative so in a while it's been uh, yeah. <laughs> oh I don't even look at it, uh, my stocks right now <laughs> yeah yeah I, I I just have my automatic investments yeah. and I don't really focus on them because I'm I'm all in on real estate you know I'm, that's my my bread and butter so now. You did do a project, and I didn't even realize this till recently for 506C for a, a, a short-term rental because you got into short-term rental business. Is that right? Are you able to talk yeah, about well, that? So I've been, I've, I actually house hacked through Airbnb right out of college. My mm-hmm. first house, I rented out three other rooms as uh, Airbnb. But uh, for the last year, I've been actually employed um, mm-hmm. by a 506C or, or a portfolio of short-term rentals. So I've been doing the investor relations and money raise side on the, mm-hmm. the 506C side. Uh, and we're closing in on 70 million raised over the last couple of years. So it's a lot of cheddar. It is. And it's been fun to see, you know, the economics behind a bigger operation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think we have like 65 employees, 70 employees now wow. and things to operate and to, to raise the money and do all the, the things you need to do on a 506C like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun to to raise on that side of things. I can talk more freely about that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're, we have 100 and so we have 140 houses in 10 different markets across the nation um, that are doing really, really well um, for for short-term rentals. So let's talk, so I haven't had anybody talking about short-term rentals other than you know someone that owns one or two just for fun. But tell us about short-term rentals. Like, why are people buying them, and why are they good investments? One, the cash flow is just amazing right now. Uh, you can make a lot of cash flow now. There's been this Airbnb bust hashed going around for the last year. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're seeing. We really are not seeing a bust. Um, our hardest hit market is probably Scottsdale. And we're seeing uh, overall, it's like a 3% decrease, negligible uh, mm-hmm. in the big things. Um, so one, the cash flow is, is there uh, in a very high interest rate inflationary market. Uh, our DSCR, which is a debt service coverage ratio, we're hovering right around 3x. That's so, what, that's that's insane. So a insane, bank's right? typically looking for like what, one and a quarter? One and a quarter, 1.5. Yeah. And so for anybody that doesn't know what that is, it's basically take your NOI after all of your you know income minus all of your operating expenses. What do you have left over to service your debt? We have three times the amount needed to service our debt on that side of things. That is wild, right? So that's unheard um, of in really anything else. Yeah, I mean, multifamily storage unit, you're not going to find that. The only thing I can think of is short-term rentals. So 
Um, that and really, you can. It's it's a market where it's a lot of mom and pops. So raising a fund and a portfolio style of short-term rentals, we compete against mom and pops. Well, we have a lot more relationships, a lot more software and and just know how. And leverage. And leverage, right? Relationships, uh, yeah, vendors and such. We have lines of credit. We can go out and, and buy these properties for... It's not as competitive as it was last year mm-hmm. because of the market, but uh, it's still... I don't, I don't know if we've seen a dip yet. I don't know. We don't really care about that because we do care about the cash flow, right? I mean, we don't want to be buying... Horrible properties are just way over asking, but we're really focused on the cash flow with that bonus of an equity play. Now back to like why we're doing this is, I mean, it's a mom and pop. We're we're, we're taking a mom and pop industry and making it a uh, institutional or we're institutionalizing an, a mom and pop type of industry. So going after the bigger exit where we can sell 150 short-term rentals to you know institutional buyers, think private equity, family offices, et cetera. Which is what happened to single family rentals in the Great Recession, you know, like that single family homes were not an asset class that Wall Street even paid attention to because they didn't think you could manage them. And then they came in and, just, and proved that you could, yep. maybe not good, maybe bad, or either way, they're making money. And so now it's short-term rentals opportunity for to show that they can do that. And, and it's a lot more intensive. So as somebody just listening to this, I own a couple of short-term rentals and one of them's down in Orlando and it's, it's a lot, you own a hotel, like your, your phone is on because somebody may have a problem with something and it's not something you can send a maintenance guy over the next couple of days. It's like, it's a little bit more important to be addressed because it's an experience that you provide not just a, a roof. So I can see why putting money into a fund for short-term rentals is much more attractive than owning an individual one. And if you're just wanting to do it as an investment class, if you're wanting to own your vacation, that's a different story. So I can of see course. how it could be very successful doing capital raise for, or it's very appealing to somebody that wants to own like a million dollars worth of investments in that asset class. Like it seems like putting in a fund would be better than going and buying several yeah, houses. I mean, most of the people that are investing, you know, are, are doctors or just mm-hmm. professionals that don't have the time to take that call. Like I just had a call two days ago or three days ago. It was like, Hey, uh, the TV's not working. So I had to walk them through. Okay. sounds like a GFCI is actually tripped. So I had to show them where that one was. And sure enough, that's what it was. So yeah, there, there's little things like that that most people just don't have the time to to really take care of. So. I know. I sent my my cleaner over to my house once and because their TV wasn't working or the cable wasn't working and all it just had to be plugged in, which it was working when they moved in or checked in. So somebody unplugged it. So if somebody unplugs it, you know to plug it in as opposed to call for help. And then that incurred an expense for me to send somebody over to plug yeah. that in. So it kind of gets irritating sometimes, but it's it's worth it financially and it's worth it to own a property like that. For sure. So what advice would you give somebody that's sitting in their, maybe they're not sitting in their A&M classroom, but they're sitting on, in a seat somewhere like real estate sounds interesting. What would you, what would you tell that person? I would tell them find people that are doing it and mm-hmm. doing what they want to do. Um, I wanted to be a buy and hold type of person. So I got in the same room with, with those people and then go do it. Um, you know, I think find someone that you can go find the deal. You know, I think that is the easiest way is to be the one that goes out and finds the deal. Once you find a deal, the money will come and structuring your deal to where you have outs. If the money doesn't come, maybe you spent, you know, a little bit of money to get the due diligence period, but in the big scheme of things, you can, you can do this for relatively low risk um, to get into it. There's always risk with investing, but just go do it. Um, And the worst thing that you're going to do is learn a $3,000, you know, lesson but you're going to own some real estate and mm-hmm. and you're ultimately going to have some equity there most likely. Right. Yeah. So we don't, well, we don't know where it's going, but over time it'll, it'll happen. Yeah. As long as you hold it, you can, and you yeah. can do that. So. Yep. So I think just knowing your strategy, 
going all in, um, you know, I, so I've been in the Maui mastermind group with Brandon Turner and they, they talk about going a mile deep with whatever you choose. And mm-hmm. so I choose something and learn it really, really well. Um, in Brian College Station, I was like the fourplex king. You know, I had people just like, hey, I've got a fourplex. What is? What do you think it's worth? You know, sort of thing. Um, and so I was a mile deep on fourplexes. Mm-hmm. And so I just go, go a mile deep on whatever you choose and, and just start start learning about it and ultimately go out and do it. I think that's the most important part is actually pulling the trigger to go. That's scary. That's scary for people. For sure. Yeah. Well, we talked about some good wins. Tell us something about that didn't work out as planned. My first flip is why I've never done another flip. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard that before. Uh, Let's go down that road and I probably can think of a couple more, but uh, I bought this flip in Brian, or yeah, I was in Brian and I thought, oh, the numbers look good. And I, I was going to do all the work. I was pretty handy. Uh, about six months into it, I was still not done. I was spending probably 20, 30 hours a week over there myself. And then all in all, we broke even just on purchase. That doesn't include any of my time. Uh, and so that one did not go very well. And we haven't really done another flip in that sense where we take a house and just redo it completely to, to, to sell. So that one has not gone well, uh, or that one did not go well. That was, man, probably nine years ago. Well, and then honestly, this last mobile home park that we bought down south kind of got scared about four months after we bought it. I didn't raise enough for reserves. I'll, I'll be clear on that. Uh, my investors know that. And so we had a big storm hit, like I said earlier, and we were we were in the negative for probably four or five months um, where I had to float the expenses for that company uh, to get back on its feet. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, we didn't have enough in reserve. Our insurance expense was more than we thought it was going to be. Uh, the due diligence, uh, though we did everything we could, we had insurance in place. That changed after like a month of having it. We had an inspector go out after we bought it to get that. So that's something I've learned is like, no, have the insurance inspector go out before you actually buy these places because they were like, oh, we'll just do it on a drive-by or, or like a desktop uh, type of appraisals in, in a mm-hmm. sense for insurance. Um, and then they went out and upon that, they were like, okay, this roof needs to be replaced or X, Y, and Z. And so just doing more due diligence in an area where we had to have flood insurance and whatnot because it's on the coast. So raising the amount of the reserve uh, is also very, very important. Um, and we just, honestly, we weren't able to raise. Uh, it was right after COVID. I think there was still some bad sentiment towards mm-hmm. investing, just people not knowing what was happening. So that one has turned out really well, but uh, there for a little while, I was I was a little nervous. You had to work for it. So <laughs> I, I think it's interesting to note your first one that you mentioned, your flip, you just didn't make money and that's why it sucked. And the next one, you had to float it for a little bit, but it's come out okay. What I find fascinating is when somebody tells you how their their 401k, their or their their stock market, their losses like those are real losses. Like they really hurt and it's real money. And then when you tell me what your your bad experiences are, they're like, "Oh, that's not bad. Like you didn't lose money or you Well, and the reason you, or you got to work your way through it. Yeah, every deal is a long-term deal for me, yeah. except for that flip. Mm-hmm. And so as long as there's a long-term strategy for every deal I do, it's going to be very mm-hmm. hard to lose money. Now, we may not have the home run that we like to have, but a base hit's better than no hit. And so, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of the strategy. And we're not in these class A asset classes usually. Mm-hmm. And so that's been another thing. We could go down a whole economic uh, strategy on that side. Of I think things, that'd be but, fascinating because uh, I think a lot of people would be curious because I know... What you and Jacob and those guys do is not your, those aren't homes in Frisco that are class A. No, I mean, and and so 
I've been preparing for a recession for the last 10 years Mm -hmm. (laughs) is really how I I say it's like, I've always said, okay, I want to be in these class B and C because those are going to be the asset classes where the most people are going to have to rent Mm -hmm. at some point. We're turning into a renter's economy right now. Um, I hope it doesn't stay that way. To be honest, I don't think it's good for just people in general, but we've seen rents increase year over year for the last two to three years through COVID. um, And especially with interest rates going up, there's such a high demand for our properties right now. And we're not talking, I mean, I think the most expensive rent I have on a property is like 1250 on a four bedroom, two, four, two in mm-hmm. uh, Mahaya, Texas. Uh, and that's a modular, right? And so that's that's the kind of asset class we're in. But we we go in and we make these places better. And so that we we can outdo any other class B and C in our areas mm-hmm. um, because of what, how we manage them and what we do. So we've seen a huge demand for our properties where five years ago it's still high demand, but definitely not what it is today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in that BC category. Like I I do think that and having managed rental properties for over twenty years now. When the market's kind of like what it is now, where people aren't bu- being able to purchase and people end up having to rent, rents historically have gone up faster in that type of environment. I think we have a we have a compression in income. So because you can really only go so high on your rent, the income has to support that, and we haven't seen the increase in incomes to offset the increase in rent. So that's going to be a very interesting. Yeah, that's that's gonna be really that's gonna get really 20%, tough on some people. Percent over the last yeah twenty two percent increase in rents I think over the last two years and then the increase in home prices went up by like thirty something so we haven't quite caught up to how fast home prices are yeah. going up but so the two aren't exactly correlated there and, is some and, correlation but yeah and not a lot of people got twenty two percent pay raises so it's definitely yeah. not. Yeah. So that, that that gets back to something. Another reason I like real estate and property management in general, and, and I have an insurance agency also. So and another thing I like is the hedge for inflation. So I don't have to worry about my boss giving me a, a 6% pay raise when the inflation went up 6%. All my rents right. went up 6% to offset my living expenses. As long as it's justifiable and makes okay. sense. So um, that's that's well, another thing that I've really always gravitated towards real estate because it hedges for those, those moments. Because if I was out still selling bonds, they don't go up in value and maturity. They're they're just they are what they yeah. are. And that's honestly a really cool part about short term rentals. Just kind of bringing it full circle is we can do that. We can manipulate prices as much as we want, like overnight. Right? Yeah, overnight. And so I just dropped my because we're not actually a very heavy. Even though I'm in Colorado, we're not a heavy winter market uh, mm-hmm. where I'm at. And so I just dropped my prices by like forty percent um, to be competitive. So and I'm one of the most booked up in the area. So it's, it's really cool to be able to to just change your pricing. Uh, whereas with a long-term, yeah, I mean, you, you can adjust for inflation usually by increasing rents on a 12-month basis. But uh, yeah, it's, it's very much a hedge against inflation in all aspects of real estate. And I'll give a little piece of advice to people that are listening. And I see this in property management all the time. Somebody comes to me like, well, I want to only want two-year leases on my houses. I'm like, well, first of all, you're locking yourself in. You may not want to have this house in two years. And two, the tenant is getting a really good deal because they're not getting a rate increase, but your taxes might go up. Your insurance might go up. You may not even like this tenant and you're married to him for two years now. And um, it's interesting how a lot of owners have this this mindset of like that reduces their risk. And to me, it no, it increases your risk. But um, that's one of those education points that I have for, for my clients from, from time to time. As long as you structure that lease, okay. I mean, I've had it to where I didn't take enough deposit. And then when they move out, it's like, man, I just lost one to two months of rent for how, for how much I had to do to that property to, to get it made ready again. So yeah. I, I get both sides. But yeah, I think as long as you yeah. structure the lease, which I'm sure you do on the property management Well, side, as long as you so. make your rental competitive, you know, location wise, it depends on, you know, how much you rent it for and 
you can't charge more than all the neighbors, but yeah. people don't want to move once they move into a house. So treat them yeah. good, give them a good place to live, safe, secure, and uh, don't gouge them. It costs money to move. It's a headache to move. As long as you're fair to them, they're going to stay. I mean, typically a, a tenant stays five years. It kind of depends. It may be more or less depending on the area, but yeah. uh, we, we like to keep our tenants for a long time if at all, if at all possible. Of course. Yeah. Okay. So I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know you're out there raising capital for the next projects. But so for anybody listening that's on the fence, what would you tell them? I don't have kids yet, but I want to be able to go to all of my kids' soccer games. I hope they Mm -hmm. play soccer. (laughs) And the flexibility that it's given my wife and I, uh, we just got back from Europe, you know, on a three-week vacation over there. And so just the the flexibility that it's been able to provide, start earlier, start Mm -hmm. as soon as you can, I think because it's a snowball effect and it takes a little bit of time to, to gain speed on it. So like I said earlier, just start so that you yeah. can, you know, start that that snowball building for when you're ready to retire, hopefully early through this method. Good. I'm glad to hear you say that. And and it's people don't go out thinking you're going to make a million bucks your first year. Like it takes a while. It's not a get rich quick. If done in the way you and I have done it, like there's people out there that are doing something different, but they're not doing the oh, long term I mean- play. They're, 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 yeah. They've created a job for themselves. Yeah. But uh, no, Tyler, I really appreciate you sharing your experience with everybody. I hope that adds value to somebody and somebody can take a little nugget out of what you've said because you've got a lot of value in what you've, you're have you sharing your experience with people. So yeah, again, I just appreciate you coming on and telling us how real estate's changed your life because it obviously has. I can tell just by looking in your, your backdrop, that's that's not a fake <laughs> bot. I mean, it's obviously not one of those that's like real time right now, but I know that's your place and that's, that's provided no, you that opportunity. You can kind of see that. So that mountain back there is uh, Mount Princeton. So it's a 14,000 foot mountain in the backyard. So it's- uh, You're having fun. You're living the dream. So I'm I'm glad for you. I'm glad you've done that. So that- You've come a long way since when I first met you in the in the in the hamburger bar in, in Waco. So but uh, <laughs> yeah. I wish I gotten to spend more time with you that day on on visiting, but we just had so much going on. But uh, yeah. there were some characters sitting around that table. Oh <laughs> <laughs> Stuart Miller. Yeah, they're all good guys. But uh, thank you so much. Look forward to it. Uh, let's keep in touch and uh, keep the conversation going. Sounds great. Thanks, all right. Thank you so much. Bye.